And good morning again. My name is Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and I have the privilege of sharing with you all this morning from this text. We are continuing our summer sermon series on the life of Moses. He was the leader of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over the course of 40 years through the desert, out of slavery. He's a fascinating study on leadership, but he's also a fascinating study on what it just means to be in a long journey in relationship with God, with the living God. And this has been our focus really, in particular, this summer. We have a couple weeks left in this series, and we're really studying what does it mean to be living out our faith on the move? What does it mean to be on the road with God, not arrived yet? And before we dive into this particular text this week, let me pray for our time together. God, we now come before you And thank you for the word, the holy word that you've provided to us, that we may know you more and more deeply out of this incredible scripture. And God, I pray you would give us humility to come before this text to learn more of who you are today. Would you teach us by your spirit today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so today's sermon topic and text is not actually a super light and easy summer um, text. The passage in Numbers we're studying actually begins with death. And we're not going to make it through the whole chapter, but the end of Numbers 20 also uh, has death. Both of Moses' siblings actually die in this chapter, on this day. And in the middle of this, his sister dying and then his brother's death, Moses fails to really lead his people well. And that's not necessarily shocking, but Then we read that God intervenes, and there's a pretty harsh consequence for what Moses does or doesn't do in this passage. And so this morning, I just want to sort of recognize this. This isn't a super easy topic to talk about today. And actually, I'll never forget the day I started to wrestle with this idea of God's justice and God's wrath or or judgment, which is what happens with Moses in this passage. I was working at a summer camp. I worked all my, I think I've talked about it before, but all through um, college, I would go and work my summers at Island Lake Summer Camp here in Washington. And I, my sophomore year was uh, working with LITs, Leaders in Training. We had all kinds of acronyms at summer camp. And uh, I was basically a sophomore in college, and I was over these high school kids who would come and pay to give their summer to work in the kitchens and help camp sort of run, and they were called Leaders in Training. And so we're at one of our first nights of worship uh, for the summer, and we've got all the campers there, and one of the speakers is up speaking the gospel message to these kids. He was talking about sin and, and hell, the reality of hell, and he was explaining um, that we are all sinners, that we all deserve punishment for our sins, and that Jesus has saved us from that punishment, offered salvation. Okay, it's very routine stuff for this summer camp And I didn't really think anything of it. This was very normal for me. And then I noticed one of our high school girls, one of these LITs, walked out of the room, kind of clearly angry. And I followed her out, thinking this is probably my job now. I should probably follow her out. And I found her sitting outside alone, looking angry and not super approachable. And so I kind of steeled myself and went up to, to ask her if she wanted to talk, if something was wrong. And She shocked me by telling me that her dad had been killed 
earlier that year, actually by, by a gunshot. And that he wasn't a Christian, she didn't think. And my very sheltered 19-year-old mind was, was blown. I'd never met anyone whose family member had been shot. I, and then she went on to explain that she didn't think he was a Christian and that he was into some pretty bad stuff. And, and do you think, she asked me point blank, he's in heaven? And my very black and white understanding of salvation and heaven and hell at, that, at this point is, was a little shaken, to be honest. I'm 19 years old. I don't remember exactly what I told her. I just said, honestly, uh, I think, I, I think I said, I don't know. But I'm just going to sit here with you. And so we sat through the rest of the service outside. And I don't want you to uh, wonder now, what, what do you think now? I, I, thank you. I am... Um, I was 19. I did a, I've done a lot of study. I've done a lot of soul searching since then. I do believe that there is a hell. I believe God is just, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Nothing she was hearing that day was wrong. But if I'm honest, I still much prefer thinking about God's love and God's mercy and God's kindness and the scriptures that speak of God's justice and judgment are easy to sort of ignore or pass over. And they have been misused. They've been abused by people. They've at times caused people to turn away from Jesus and not towards him. And so for all of these reasons, this is an easy thing for me to try to ignore sometimes, still. But the scriptures are full of stories of God's justice and God's judgment, just as they're full of stories of God's mercy and God's grace. And I think we need both to really grasp a picture of who God is and who we are as God's creatures. And so I just want to invite us today to listen to this text and really not ignore the hard parts of it, even though it could be especially hard for some of us if we've had baggage or had, it, had stories like this abused in the church. But I believe God's justice has powerful implications for us when we are caught in moments of anger, as Moses was. There's actually three themes in this passage we're going to tease out. First, death, anger, and finally, justice. And I believe we'll see this morning that in the midst of our worst moments and our worst days or years, in some cases, that anger and grief are actually inevitable emotions for us as human beings. But it's in these moments that we're invited in this passage not to turn towards, in our human power, towards unrelenting punishment and vengeance, but to move in God's power towards justice and grace. And so we'll unpack some of this this morning. And first, in this passage, we read that Israel has arrived at the desert of Zin. They're camping at a place called Kadesh. And this is actually where the Israelites were some 30 years ago when they first sent spies into Canaan. They had left Egypt, they had been freed from slavery and freed from their enemies. And they come to Kadesh, which is kind of on the bridge, on the border of this promised land God has promised them. And they fail to trust God to give it to them. And they send spies and they get very nervous and don't think they can go in. And so God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and learn to trust me in these 40 years and learn about faithfulness, my faithfulness. And so now they've arrived back here, which means they're getting close to the end of their wanderings. Some scholars believe they actually spent several years camped here in this place called Kadesh before they then enter into the promised land. 
And now I've realized, or so now we, they've arrived here and Miriam, we're told, has died. It's kind of an abrupt, tiny verse. There's very little about this. There's very little information, but I still think her death meant something. It wouldn't be here otherwise. And it also comes just before this pretty pivotal moment for Moses. And so we're going to camp here, quote unquote, for just a moment and consider who Miriam was to Moses and to the people of Israel. Because Miriam's not actually mentioned a whole lot in scripture. She is described in Exodus 15, right after Israel has come out of Egypt, as Miriam the prophetess. And then she proceeds to lead all the women of Israel in song of praise to God. It's a powerful moment for the people, and her leadership there is, is not a small thing. She's later described by the prophet Micah as one of Israel's leaders alongside Aaron and Moses. And to Moses, she's not just a prophet. She's not just a leader, right? She's a sister. She's, she's family. His parents are kind of MIA after he's born. We don't read anything else about them. But it's Miriam who watches what happened to him when his mother floats him in the Nile River, remember, in a basket. Miriam is the one who watches what happens, who sees him taken into the palace. And it's Miriam, we believe through Jewish commentaries and stories, who helped Moses maybe realize that he was Hebrew and not Egyptian after he'd lived his whole life in Pharaoh's house. It's Miriam who reminds him of his identity. She's his big sister. She's a sounding board. She's a source of constancy when the people of Israel are in some ways chaotic and just unruly. Moses, or Miriam, is there as part of Moses' very identity as a Hebrew man and as a leader of the people. And many of us in this room today have experienced or will experience the kind of loss that Moses' loss of his big sister was. The loss of a sibling or a parent or a dear friend or grandparent, but someone who held part of our identity, who shakes our identity when they're gone. And when this happens, we lose someone who holds part of our history. There's other kinds of deep loss that does this too, though. Loss of an unborn child or loss of a, a dream, loss of a career, or the jo a job or a house or a friendship. And the grief we experience in that loss is powerful and it can change us, I think for better or for worse. It can make us more compassionate, more graceful, less prone to snap, more conscious of the preciousness of life. Or it can make us bitter, angry, short-fused. It can make us resentful or cynical and lead us to do things we regret. So during this chapter, this is a brief point. The second one will be longer. But this first theme, just keep in mind, Moses is in this type of Greek grief, most likely. And from what we know, he hasn't actually had that much of an outlet for this grief. Because when she dies, we read in verse 1 that Israel buries her there in Kadesh, but we don't see anything about Israel mourning her. And we can contrast that because Aaron dies at the end of this chapter, and we read that Israel mourns him for 30 days. And so there hasn't necessarily been time for Moses to deal with this. So it stands to reason that Israel is sort of preoccupied with other things and that they've buried Miriam and moved on and now they're starting to get restless, worried about water, worried about food. And Moses, who's probably not only exhausted from grieving the loss of his sister, but also from leading this people for 30 plus years, he's pretty old at this point. 
he's once again facing an angry, accusatory people. And this is where we move into our second theme of this passage. And Moses appears to have arrived at the second stage of grief. Many of us know these stages of grief. Denial is the first. Anger is the second. Brad Thayer is our pastor over at Bethany's Ballard, and he was in our teaching team this week. We meet every Monday with teaching team, everyone who's teaching at the different campuses to pray and study the scriptures together. It's a pretty cool time. He was sharing that he learned from his wife, who's a therapist, that there are actually, uh, some people say, five stages of anger as well as five stages of grief. And this was news to me. I didn't I'd never heard this, and it might be news to some of you, so I thought I'd share these stages of anger briefly as a framework for understanding where Moses is in this passage. And it might be a framework some of us will relate to as well. We'll see. But first stage is uh, mild irritation. It's the result of something unpleasant, makes you uneasy, possibly a little frustrated. It's the first stage, irritation. Second stage, indignation. This is a deeper level of anger. And this is often a reaction to something that seems unfair or unreasonable. It still might be covered up. You, may, you usually are not necessarily expressing this stage of anger. It's not necessarily outward, but indignation. The third stage, and this surprised me, is uh, wrath. I thought that would be like fifth, but that's the third stage of anger. And this is almost never unexpressed. It might be in words or facial expression or body language. It's almost always still controlled, but it is an outwardly visible anger. Fourth stage, and again, this is, there's many of these out here, but this is one perspective. Fourth stage, fury. Fury is the stage where physical expression often comes. There's shouting, there's slamming of doors, slamming of pots and pans. It's still controlled, maybe barely at times. And then the fifth stage is rage. And this is the most intense level of anger, the most dangerous. This is the type of anger that results in holes punched in the wall, in fist fights, in the worst, in murder. And it's, it's a loss of control. Brutal violence can be committed with this final stage. So those are the five stages of anger. And I explain these in part because I'm intrigued by them, obviously. And then I also think they might be helpful because I think this might help us identify what's happening to Moses. And Israel, for at least the tenth time, let's remember, has decided they're going to confront Moses for what they perceive to be his terrible leadership. And keep in mind, it isn't surprising that Israel's frustrated. They've been camping in the desert for a long time, 30-plus years. And at the same time, they haven't been starving. Manna has been coming every morning still, and quail is showing up every night still. They barely have to lift a finger for their food. They walk out their door, and food is there. God has been visibly present with them this whole time. But when the water supply runs short or the food gets too repetitive, the people get restless and discontent creeps in, and this time it's both. They're running short on water and they're bored of the food, and they surround Moses and Aaron, and they're starting to fight with them. This passage is often called the waters of Meribah. That's what the place ends up being named, the waters of quarrel. And so they tell Moses and Aaron, we wish we died already. Our lives are so hard. Why did you bring us out here? 
just so we could die. Why did you ever bring us out of Egypt? In Egypt, we got to eat figs and pomegranates. There was wine. There was wheat. We don't have anything like that here. We don't even have water. Now, you would think Egypt was a promised land, right? But let's remember, Israel had no rights in Egypt. They were slaves. Their men were dying from overwork. Their babies were being killed by Egyptian guards. How in the world could they be pining for Egypt? But instead of reminding Israel of who their God is, instead of leading the people towards faith in their God who's been so faithful, Moses and Aaron don't do either of those things. They literally we don't respond at all to the crowd that we have in our scriptures. They just turn around and uh, they head towards the tent of meeting. They turn to God to ask God to do something, to make the complaining stop. And turning to God, hear me, isn't a bad reaction in this case. They're right to go to God. But in running away from the people to ask God to make them stop complaining, Moses and Aaron fail to communicate who God is to the people. They fail to remind them that God has delivered them from so much and incite praise for their holy God. And it's a failure of leadership here. We're going to come back to that when we get to our third theme today. But God is faithful to Moses and Aaron. He meets them. His glory comes into this tent of meeting and he gives them specific instructions about what to do to help solve the people's problem. He's told to grab Aaron's staff. This is the specific instructions. One, he's supposed to grab Aaron's staff from in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That's where we read in in number 17. That's where it was stored to help the people remember how God has been faithful. So he's supposed to get the staff, gather the people together. Two, three, simply speak to the rock and water shall come forth in abundance. And keep in mind, Moses has done this before. In Exodus 17, the people make almost the exact same complaint, and God directs Moses to strike a rock for water to come out. But this time, God tells Moses to simply speak to the rock. This will reiterate for Israel just how powerful God is, that not even this staff, this staff that has in some ways come to be revered among the people, not even this staff is necessary for God to provide water for them as he has done countless times before. And so Moses grabs the staff, and he gathers the people, just like God said, one and two steps, perfect. But then, and you probably noticed this, he doesn't speak to the rock. He speaks to the people. And he doesn't tell the people what he maybe should have said. He doesn't tell the people that God is faithful, that he will provide water for us. But he says, listen, you disobedient rebels, Do we have to bring water for you out of this rock? Subtext, do we have to do everything for you, you disobedient children? And then perhaps because Moses is impatient, perhaps because he's at the end of his rope, or because he just wants the people to respect him for once and his leadership, he uses his staff and he strikes the rock. And he strikes it twice. And you can sort of imagine this. Moses just slamming on this rock. Not calm, not collected, but not necessarily even in full control. Coming back to our stages of anger, I believe Moses is somewhere between fury, number four, and rage, number five, because he's yelling at the people, and that's at least fury. And then he's striking the rock when God clearly told him to simply speak to it. He's bordering on rage, and he's only thankfully, physically taking it out on an inanimate object, on a rock. 
But in a spiritual way, he's taking it out on the people. Because instead of being their leader in this moment and pointing them to God and giving God the glory, he's making the moment about himself. And he's given himself over to the anger of this moment. Now, I'm sure none of us can relate to this. None of us have ever gotten angry or done something you've regretted. Yeah, none of you. But me, I have. And uh, this might surprise you, actually, a few of you, because I don't get angry very often. Uh, I don't get angry with very many people in my life. I have some very close friends I've never been truly angry with, at least so that it showed on the outside, past the second stage. And so uh, I'll never forget hearing about my tendency to get angry to like number four stage, at least, uh, secondhand. I heard about it secondhand. Back in 2011, uh, that's when I got engaged to Matt. And before he proposed to me, he secretly planned a trip. This is something many of you in the room might have done. Um, down to visit my parents to ask my dad for his blessing. And so he drove down to Vancouver, unbeknownst to me, met my dad at a Burgerville or something, and had lunch with him. And instead of my dad telling Matt all the ways he should make sure he takes care of me and treats me well and, and you know, maybe talking about his imaginary shotgun, I, I don't know. That's what I imagine most dads of daughters do. Uh, my dad told Matt about all my less attractive qualities. <laughs> and luckily, my dad and I have a good relationship, so this wasn't... This wasn't a terrible thing, but my Matt reported back that my dad had warned Matt that I have a bit of a temper, and that when I get mad, I have a tendency to stomp my feet and slam doors, and that I have a stubborn streak. Can you believe this? My dad. And so it wasn't long into our marriage before Matt was able to confirm that my dad was correct, and I do still slam doors. Um, okay. Anger is obviously a fairly universal emotion. All of us experience anger. We can be angry at inanimate objects, computers, other cars, doors that shut on our fingers. We can be angry at people we don't know, like other drivers, or loud people in coffee shops. This is me. We can get angry at things we hear in the news, right? At people being hurt without cause, at beauty being marred or ruined. And of course, we can get angry with the people we most love. And for some of us, anger may come often and without reason, or at least reason we can identify. But I believe anger in some form, hear me, is actually part of God's image imprinted on us, that we were actually created with anger as part of how we reflect the image of God. And that's because we read in Scripture that the words anger and wrath are ascribed to God over 200 times, ascribed to who God is and his character. Now, God is holy and perfect and good, and God is love, and so within those things, there must be a place for anger. Interestingly, in most of our English translations, the word rage is never ascribed to God. Now, hear me, this is just the English translations. We have many words for anger in our English language, this out-of-control, destructive kind of anger that is rage, the kind we're susceptible to as human beings, is actually only used in reference to human beings in our English Bibles. I thought that was interesting. It seems important that we have many different words for the kinds of anger, and important to understand which ones are ascribed to God. Because God's anger is always related to injustice, 
to people choosing death over life, to people choosing to turn against their creator and choosing to destroy their own lives and the lives of others. Jesus is actually rarely described as angry, but in Mark 3, we read that Jesus looks around in anger when he's trying to heal a man on the Sabbath, and all of these religious leaders are against him, are judging him for that, for trying to heal someone because of their legalistic system of rules and laws. This is what makes Jesus angry, this injustice for the crippled and the broken. The anger that is from God is the kind that sees injustice, sees destruction of life, and is moved to emotion and action. And it's not an anger that's self-serving. It's not born out of selfish desire. It's an anger that's born out of love for creation. And this is where we'll move into our third and final theme from this passage, where we see God working in justice with Moses and Aaron. This is where we get to verse 12, where God says to Moses and his brother, you haven't trusted me enough to honor me in front of the people, to show me to be holy. And I'm paraphrasing here. But you failed to lead the people to me, which is your first and most important job as, our le- as the leader of Israel. And so I'm going to find new leaders, people who can lead Israel into the promised land, who will be able to control their anger, who will be able to trust me. You, Moses, you, Aaron, will not lead the people into the promised land. It's harsh. It sounds harsh. But the reality is God is not telling them in this moment that they can't enter the promised land. If we believe the promised land here is both physical and spiritual, I believe God's still inviting them in everlasting relationship and communion with him. This is not damnation for them. This is a change of leadership. And this is God telling Moses and Aaron, after everything you've been through with me, you don't trust me. You wanted to punish the people instead of acting in my love and grace and trusting me in this moment. You acted in anger and not in my justice. And in doing that, you're standing in the way of the people seeing me, seeing, says God. And so Aaron, keep in mind at this point, has already failed in a few different ways, including helping Israel build a golden calf while Moses was taking too long on Mount Sinai. This isn't his first failure as a leader. And Moses has also struggled with trust and anger management most of his life. Even going all the way back to his time in Egypt before he left for Midian, when he was living in Pharaoh's palace, he murders an Egyptian guard in a fit of anger. When he sees the golden calf as he comes down the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments inscribed on a tablets of stone, what does he do? He throws them to the ground now and breaks them. It, it, stone tablets have to be thrown pretty hard to be broken. And so this is not new for Moses. This isn't his only offense. And now Miriam is gone. Aaron is about to be gone as well. And Moses is losing the people who've supported him and helped him bear this tremendous burden of leadership. And he's failing to lead the people well. And it's time to let go. It's time to let someone else lead. And God uses this example as a reason for this change. This is not out of spite or rage or a petty misunderstanding about striking a rock versus speaking to it. This is because Moses has failed to lead God's people and God's judgment is born out of love for his people. And Moses has worked hard and long for God and for his people. And that's why this can feel like a pretty hard moment or harsh moment. 
But notice that Moses doesn't argue with God about this. He doesn't plead with God. In fact, he must somehow understand immediately what he's done, and he humbles himself to God's will. And given how often Moses has pled with God on Israel's behalf or on his own behalf, it's notable that he doesn't do it now. God's justice here is clear to Moses, even if it's not immediately recognizable to us. But I want us to point also to the, to the faithfulness and mercy and grace that's in this passage that comes from God. Because anger that leads to destruction and injustice and punishment is not anger that's from God. Moses himself in Numbers 14 says that God is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's a familiar phrase to us. And this shows up in this story. The people are complaining of thirst and pining for their life in Egypt. And of course, Moses gets angry. But he hits a rock. And guess what? Water still pours out in abundance. And all the people get to drink. God's justice is always marked by grace. And Aaron, though he dies at the end of this chapter... And though he's had some epic leadership fails, failures, he's still given a proper burial. He's mourned for 30 days by the people. Moses, though he can't lead the people into the promised land, will be able to lay his eyes on the beauty of this land. And of course, he will be honored throughout Scripture for his faith and his closeness with God. There is mercy in this and grace. And today we're invited to learn from Moses' mistake in this passage, because he has a tough day. He has a tough week or month, whatever it is. And his grief, combined with another angry mob, push him to this familiar emotion of anger for him. And in his anger, instead of seeking God's justice that's marked by grace and mercy, that rooting it in love, he seeks his own gratification and he yells and hits a rock and forgets God and forgets his love for his people. And we are faced, I think, with the same choice over and over again in life. What do I allow to make me angry? Am I angered by the sex trafficking I see when I'm on Lake City Way or on Aurora? Am I angered by racial injustice when I see it in the media or in the bank or at the bus? Am I, or am I angered by the driver that cut me off? Or by Matt when he forgot to do the dishes that I asked him to do? Or by the barista who made me a crummy latte or the person like happened to me this morning who ordered 10 drinks in front of me in line? What am I angered by? Yeah. <laughs> and when I get angry, am I moved to justice? Anger that is rooted in love results in action on behalf of others, justice. And anger that's rooted in self results in punishment and revenge. And this is how we can understand that a God whose very identity is rooted in love can also be angry, can even be described as full of wrath. I want to contrast that with, um, this came to mind, Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous sermon in the 1740s called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He delivered it to a church in Connecticut. Many of you may have read it or heard of it. Edwards was a theologian who has shaped a significant part of our Christian theology in this country. For good and bad, I think. And I want to read an excerpt of this sermon, as I believe this is the type of rhetoric that we have unconsciously or consciously picked up on, especially if we grew up in some of the churches in this country. So listen to this, and it's a little bit of a disturbing description. 
I want to say that to the beginning. But towards the end of his sermon, I'm going to read just a paragraph of what Edwards wrote. And I want to think about whether you hear what the anger of God is rooted in or not. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, Edwards wrote, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looked upon, looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in our eyes. And it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It's hard for me to pick up on the love of God that is the source of his anger from this kind of rhetoric. And I read that because some of us heard that growing up. Yes, God is just and God is holy and we are not, we are sinners. We have at times angered God, absolutely. But not because God hates us and not because God abhors us, but because God loves us. And just as a dad gets angry when his daughter sneaks out of the house or a mom gets angry when her son lies about his homework, it's not an anger that's born out of revenge or self. It's an anger that's born out of love, of wanting the child to find joy and life and peace. And today, I just invite you to consider how you think about God's anger and God's judgment. Do you really believe it to be rooted in love for you, love for this world, or do you secretly believe that God abhors you? We must, if we're to believe Moses, we must know that God is abounding in love and believe John when he wrote that God is love and believe John when he wrote that for God so loved this world that he would sacrifice his son for us. That God's justice is for us, not against us. That God created humanity out of love and out of love has redeemed us from the darkness of sin and death. Christ is the ultimate proof of that. God knew that our sin would always be in the way of us experiencing true relationship with him, that we would never truly be able to escape the power of sin and death without powerful divine intervention. And so God chose to come into our midst and chose to go to the cross and to take on all of our injustice and all of our sin and suffer the death we do deserve so that we might experience the promised land of light and life and abundance, and so that the penalty of sin would be paid once for all, that we would be free. It's the ultimate act of love. And we're simply invited to accept that offer of life and invite the God of love and justice to walk with us, to embrace a relationship with our creator God, who loves us more than we'll ever understand. And if we accept this, then I believe in our anger, in those moments of anger we find. Perhaps even our most volatile and dangerous emotion can be used for God's glory. And even in that moment, whether it's in the car or if it's with your kids or with your spouse or your roommate, in that moment where anger flares up, can we ask two maybe simple questions? And this is a big ask because it's hard in those moments of anger to sort of collect yourself. I understand this. But what one, what is the root of this anger? And two, God, what would you have me do? 
What is the root of this anger and what would you have me do? And there are times when we must act, when God can use the anger that we're experiencing to bring about justice. And there are times when we must recognize that our anger is rooted in hurt or grief or pride and remember the tremendous love and grace God has for us and for this world and ask God to temper our anger. And so I think it's so important that we get this today, that if you see God as an angry judge, you will act as an angry judge in your life. And if you see God as gracious and loving, whose even anger is rooted in love, you will be able to then act as gracious and loving with the people in your life. And even in your moments of anger, you can be marked by grace and the justice that God has given us. I want to invite the musicians back up. I'm going to pray for our time, but I just invite you to take a few moments as we sing to ask God to show you who he is, that he would really impress upon you the love he has for you and for the people in your life, even the ones who make you the most angry. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize today that we are human beings, that we have human emotion, that God, we are far, far from perfect. And yet you, in your goodness and grace, have shown us, God, that you love us in spite of all of that and have shown that love in your son, Jesus. Would we embrace the love you've given us? Would we walk in it, God, in our lives? And would you take our anger and use it for your goodness and your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.